I'm creative business coach, Anastasia Williams, and you are listening to Making Magic, a podcast for fiber artists, makers, and creatives who are looking to craft a business with intention. Hello, welcome to episode 27. Please forgive any background noise as I record this intro. I decided to edit at the very last minute, and of course, um, I have a toddler who's pushing a lot of buttons on things in our hotel room because we're on vacation. Anyway, today I am pretty excited here uh, to bring you an interview with Janet LeBlanc of Paper and Spark. And she is somebody that I have referred to a lot if you subscribe to my creative business letters, which is my Sunday email newsletter. Um, but she has so much information on budgeting, on accounting, on finances, on taxes, all that kind of stuff. And so we are going to talk a little bit today about her business and some of her like tips for getting started with working on your numbers. Um, and I think we'll just, we'll go ahead and we'll dive right in. Just to start, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do and how you got started doing what you do? Sure. So hi, I'm Janet LeBlanc. Um, I run a business called Paper and Spark. I'm located in Greenville, South Carolina, and I am a mom of two little ones. Um, I am actually an accountant. I'm a technically a CPA, a licensed CPA. And I got started running Paper and Spark in 2014. If you're not familiar with Paper and Spark, it is a business where I provide resources, templates, educational tools to help makers and artists and e-commerce sellers get more confident about the financial side of their business. It's something that often holds us back from like fully going for it when it comes to our entrepreneurial dreams. So my goal with Paper and Spark is to help you feel good about handling that side of your business. And I got started with it long ago because um, as an accountant, I didn't really enjoy working my typical cubicle accounting jobs. Um, I just felt like I was working all the time and it didn't really light me up and I wanted a creative outlet on the side. So in 2011, I started selling handmade jewelry on Etsy. It was like the easiest thing that I could teach myself how to do. And I loved being a business owner. I loved selling on Etsy. I loved being a part of that maker community. And I ended up selling in some local shops. I was in Houston back, back in that time. Um, and working with some other artists and makers and throughout my time making jewelry, I kept coming across other makers, other artists who had so many questions and lots of overwhelm when it came to the money side of their business, the money side of running a handmade shop. You know, do I have to claim this on my taxes? How can I make sure I'm setting pricing, prices for profits? Um, am I supposed to get a sales tax permit? You know, just lots of questions. There's not really like one good trustworthy resource out there to get guidance on those topics. And that's really why I started Paper and Spark in 2014. I wanted to bridge that gap, like I said, so that more makers can check this stuff off their list and then get back to doing 
the fun stuff, which is creating the products and making money from selling them, right? Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So, okay, so here's a question then that I have. So when you started in 2014 mm-hmm. and now it's 2021, so that's like, that's quite a bit of time. So yes. what did, for you specifically, what did that business look like then versus how has it evolved to now? Such a fun question. I feel like, like many entrepreneurs, especially if you've been selling for a while, which like seven years now is like such a long time in, in internet community terms, right? My business has gone through many, many pivots. So first, when I was still making jewelry under that umbrella, the name of the shop was Lazy Owl Boutique, which is like a horrible, horrible business name. But I started blogging about number stuff back then. And that's kind of what dipped my toe in the water. And when I started Paper and Spark in 2014, I actually was not selling spreadsheets, which are my bread and butter now. Um, I was still blogging about these topics, but I actually designed desktop goods like binders, journals, mugs. It was back in the day when um, drop shipping had like just become a thing. So I was like, oh, let me not have to stock inventory in my house. And I taught myself how to use Photoshop and I made those kinds of products. And I just kept getting called back to, you need to talk more about accounting. Like the only thing I'm an accountant who taught myself how to make jewelry. I'm an accountant who taught myself how to use Photoshop. The only thing that I'm really, truly good at is talking about accounting, explaining those topics. Like that's what made me unique. Right. So I kept getting called back to it and started with just the Etsy seller spreadsheet, which was basically a pretty simple template that I used myself um, to keep track of my sales numbers and my fees and everything on Etsy. That's what I first released. And now fast forward to 2021, I've got spreadsheets for several different e-commerce platforms, um, not just Etsy, but Shopify, Amazon, Squarespace and others. Um, And then I also started creating courses. Um, So if you don't just need help keeping your books, but maybe you just need someone to kind of hold your hand and walk you through how to get your financial decks in a row, I have courses that will help you with those sorts of topics and also courses for pricing and productivity. Um, So it's grown a lot. It It was something that I actually started um, when I quit working full time with the birth of my daughter, uh, who was born in 2013. So I started it right, right when I was like on, you know, unlimited maternity leave with her. Um, so that was a fun project. And then it just kind of grew from there. And, um, now it basically supports our family of four full time. So it has grown massively since 2014. And I absolutely love that I get to do this as my job. Yeah, that's amazing. So are you still just like kind of a one, one person show? I have a couple of contractors that help with like social media and answering emails, but right now I'm literally in the process of hiring my first actual employee. Oh, wow. That's exciting. That's a huge step. (laughs) Yes. It's a lot of uh, mindset issues to get over doing that. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. I just, it's, it's scary being an employer, you know, it's one, it's one thing to just be a one woman show, but now you're going to be responsible for 
an employee. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. I can't imagine. So at what point, at what point did you decide like, Hey, I need some additional help more than just me. And I don't feel like I need to be taking on everything. Uh, it's definitely been a process like with everything else. Um, there's, there are many things in running a business where I've been like, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to feel comfortable doing that. Like I used to say, I would never feel comfortable doing a podcast. I'd never feel comfortable teaching on Facebook via video. You know, I'm definitely introvert, like to hide behind my screens. And I always said like, I'm, I'm never going to hire an employee. I'm never going to teach on video. Um, but it just slowly over time, I kind of warm up to it, slowly gain confidence in order to do it. Um, when I finally outsourced my first, you know, set of work to a contractor and got to the other side of that, I was like, oh, wow, this is like really nice. It's, it's not as scary as I thought. Like I can trust other people to work in the business. I don't have to do everything myself. Um, it's just a slow process of letting go. Yeah. We're <laughs> getting braver, you know, yes. step by step. Relinquishing control. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So what does it look like? I, I'm curious about this. So what does it look like when somebody helps with your social media? Like, do you have to teach them kind of what your brand voice is? Like, how does that work? Yeah, she was actually the first contractor that I hired. Um, and I, I met her in person at a conference, mm -hmm. which really helped me feel confident enough to take that first step towards outsourcing. Like I, I saw her in person. Um, I felt, I felt more comfortable and more confident about it because I knew her in real life. Um, yes. Since then I've hired like totally virtual contractors, but that helped me make that first step. Um, and she will come up with the images for my Instagram and my Pinterest posts, but she takes a lot of the copy from copy that I've already written. So like emails that I've sent, blog posts that I've written, like she'll draw on that. So it's still in my voice. And then she drafts the, the post and I can go in and edit them if I want or be like, yeah, that's good to go. Um, so that way they're still in Janet's tone. Yeah. Um, but I'm not, I think the hardest part with something like social media posts is just coming up with all the ideas, you know, and she will come up with all of the topics and ideas for me. Um, and then I can just have like approval for them to go out. So it, mm. it takes a lot of that load off. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Frees up your brain to worry about everything else. Right. <laughs> so, okay. So another question with your business specifically, so, cause you have young children. So how, how have you learned to kind of manage, especially like being home with them the whole time that you've been growing this, like, how have you learned to manage when to switch off or to switch off or do you have boundaries around your time? That has probably been the hardest part of running my own business, working from home, um, especially when you really love what you do. Uh, I have the tendency to want to be working all the time or I'm thinking of work a lot of the time, you know, um, so no, I, I definitely don't think I figured this out yet. It's, it's <laughs> definitely seasoned. You know, I'm looking forward to back to school. My youngest is still not in kindergarten, but he will be going to preschool a few days a week. Uh, so summer is a particularly 
fun time for running the business. Thankfully, it's the slower time of year for Paper and Spark. Um, and then, you know, with the pandemic, when everyone was home for like a year, that was also super fun. But it's it's the best thing that I can do. I haven't gotten really good at setting like mental boundaries, like turn work off, leave the office, because the office is always right here at my house. So I can pop into the computer anytime. That's definitely something that I still struggle with to this day. But the the best thing that I try and do is just have really good organized to-do list and like project management um, skills. I use Asana for that, mm -hmm. but I, I try and have every project that I'm working on or every task that I need to do broken down somewhere so that when I do sit at the computer, I'm using my time as effectively and efficiently as possible and not just spinning my wheels like, hey, let me check some stats and hop onto Facebook or like check my Instagram, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that's been really what has helped me move the needle forward a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, just making sure that I know what I need to be working on before I even sit down because the time is so scattered and it can be hard to concentrate with everyone in the house while I'm working. Yeah. Yeah. I would, <laughs> I would totally imagine that. That would be a huge challenge. Um, all right. So shifting from your business um, a little bit when, okay. So you work primarily with like number stuff. We know this, this is, this is a great thing, but um, I know that through some of the content that I've absorbed from you, that it does seem like there's some common misconceptions or misinformation about kind of taxes and finances and things like that. So what are, what are the ones that you see come through like the most often? The, the most, the, the biggest overarching misconception and thing that I see mis, misinformation about with, with great confidence on the internet, people are very confidently wrong a lot of times, <laughs> is that uh, we don't have to, as makers, as e-commerce sellers, we don't have to deal with taxes until X happens. And you can fill in the blank of X with a dollar amount. Like I don't have to deal with taxes or claiming this stuff or becoming a business until I make a thousand dollars, until I turn a profit, until I bring in $20,000. You know, there's all sorts of different rumors or thresholds when it comes to like, I'm not an official business until XYZ happens. And that really is is not correct because for the most part when you set up shop online when you start selling your product with the intent to make a profit like you are now a business uh whether you want to be or not um it's it by the time you've set up your shop online with the intent to make money you're no longer a hobby so that's when you want to start keeping track of your sales and fees and and having a bookkeeping system to support you and being prepared to deal with this stuff come tax time, even if you didn't make a whole lot of money this year. Um, I, I think it's something we think we can just kind of like skate under the radar for a while. Uh, and we get that thought reinforced by seeing other people say like, oh yeah, you don't have to deal with that until XYZ happens. And unfortunately, 99% of the time, that's just not true. Yeah, my, I think my dad used to um, have like a, 
So he was a mechanic at the post office, but then he would do people's cars and stuff in his shop at home. And he used to say, well, as long as I'm not making more than $5,000, we don't have to put it on the taxes. <laughs> so in my head, that's always stuck. $5,000, yep. It's like an arbitrary number, right? <laughs> and I hate to be the little black rain cloud or the Eeyore in the conversation that's like, mm, actually, you probably have to deal with it before then, but. <laughs> when people are kind of getting started mm -hmm. with their business, and they're starting to kind of figure out their numbers and kind of some of the legalities and all those like little nuances that we kind of just forget because we're creatives and we like to like take our brain to like other places. Um, so do you recommend actually sitting down with somebody who's like a tax accountant or like a CPA or do you think it's possible to do some of this stuff on your own, like with the help of something like your spreadsheets or do you feel like there's a combination involved? I think either answer can be right. I mean, sitting down working one-on-one -on -one with a CPA or a tax accountant that can truly understand your business can be an invaluable experience. Um, number one, make sure you find an accountant that understands how e-commerce specifically works or handmade sellers, handmade businesses work because Accounts are kind of like doctors, like they specialize in one certain thing and they may not be super familiar with how our type of business works, right? I've, I've heard wrong advice even from other accountants because they're just not well-versed in this specific niche, right? Sure. Um, and number two, a lot of times, you know, let's say you find the right accountant that understands how our industry works, sometimes that's not affordable for you. That's not in the budget right out of the gate. Um, so I, I, I don't want like, oh, you know, I can't afford to sit down with a CPA right now. So I'm just going to put this on the back burner. I don't want that kind of thought process to hold you back. In general, you are capable of doing it on your own. It's not as hard as we make it out to be. The information sometimes just feels like it's hard to find. Um, so it's hard to get started because there's not always one good resource specific to you, your state, your country, whatever, um, to get you going. But it, I, I do have checklists. I do have a course that walks you through this, but there's a free checklist called the Get Legit Checklist also um, that can just provide like that step-by-step, -step, okay, here's what needs to be on my radar. And that's things mm -hmm. like getting a business bank account, getting a sales tax permit, um, you know, tracking those sales and expenses in your books so that you're ready to report it at tax time. It, it's really not as difficult as we make it seem. We just kind of need some guidance, whether that be from an actual CPA working with you one-on-one -on -one or a trusted resource, hopefully like Paper and Spark to help walk you through getting there. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's great. Another question that I have. Um, so how, how do you feel about Etsy? Like in the sense of, <laughs> this is kind of a loaded question, so <laughs> we don't have to get super deep into it, but there is a lot of back and forth, right? Between, you know, is Etsy the best platform? Is it, you know, doing something on your own, like having your own Shopify or Squarespace, the best way to go? Um, what are some of your thoughts or experiences on that in general? I 
think like most people in the handmade community, I have mixed feelings about Etsy. Um, there are plenty of complaints that I think we could discuss with them, but I do at the end of the day think that Etsy is one of the best, if not the best platforms for you to get started on. I don't necessarily think it should be your end game, but there's still really nothing and no one that can beat that built-in traffic that Etsy gives its sellers. Um, I even started selling my spreadsheets on Etsy back in the day. And, uh, you know, back then when I first got started, I had, I had spreadsheets on Etsy. I had spreadsheets on my own site and Etsy was bringing in like 90% of my traffic. And I, and I do think that there's something to be said for setting up on your own Shopify or .com site. And, you know, once you have the bandwidth to do that, I think having your own site is worthwhile and then starting to focus your marketing efforts towards your own .com where you're going to make a better profit on each sale and you have more control over your brand and you don't have someone dictating whether you have to offer free shipping or respond to conversations within 24 hours or any of those things. <laughs> but I do think it's a great platform for getting that exposure in the very beginning because um, you just can't you, you can't beat that built-in traffic. Um, right. I, I'm all for like set up your Etsy, get it to where it's running on autopilot. Like you're not, you're not working any, after a year or two, you're not working anymore to bring traffic to your Etsy shop. You're just taking advantage of the traffic Etsy already has. And you're putting all of your effort towards your own site. I think there's room for both. That's still how I run Paper and Spark to this day. Etsy is just sitting there on autopilot um, and I focus all my effort on my own site. And I mean, you have to kind of, you have to balance your, your mental. I, I at least have to balance my mental state with Etsy because yeah, I mean, I can go on Etsy and, and see 10 other shops selling spreadsheets and get frustrated real quick, you know, but I just keep my eyes on my own paper and it's, it's working just on autopilot, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously that system seems to be working for you if you're able to support your family. So that's great. But I mean, like, you know, the thing with Etsy that's, um, that I think a lot of people don't understand is that traffic, is that, you know, assuming that you kind of figure out all the kind of quote unquote Algorithm. Etsy. Yeah, 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 that stuff within Etsy, um, it can really play to your advantage. And on top of that, the fact that now a lot of those Etsy listings are actually being found in Google. Yes. Whereas like if you were to do Instagram and you did like the Instagram shop or whatever, those mm -hmm. listings don't show up in Google if somebody were just to be looking for something. Mm -hmm. But the weird random stuff that's on Etsy definitely does show up in Google shopping. So that definitely, that's huge. That's a huge advantage to have. Right. Um, There's so. so many benefits to selling on Etsy. I think where, when you start your own site, you're starting totally from scratch, you mm -hmm. know, and that takes a long time to build up. Um, yeah. I know a lot of people complain about how much Etsy costs, but that's where you've got to make sure you're priced appropriately to mm -hmm. sell on Etsy and still make a profit, you know? Right. Yeah, definitely. What are your thoughts on free shipping? 
Um, I don't, I don't have any like real set opinions. I mean, for me coming at it from a numbers perspective, it's just all about knowing your profit margin, knowing your, your pricing and making sure that you're periodically checking your overall business profit margin from time to time. So when I'm talking about profit margin, I'm just talking about your revenue minus all your expenses. Um, and you want to make sure you're you're priced to where if you offer free shipping, you're not going to end up selling at a loss or selling at a point where you're paying yourself $2 an hour. Um, and it's tricky because I, I almost don't think you can even consider it necessarily on a per product level when it comes to free shipping, because it, it always seems like you're going to have some products, especially with the $35 thing, you're going to have some products where it eats into your profit more and somewhere it, it, it boosts your profit more, right? So mm -hmm. it's almost like you have to make sure you're balancing out on an overall shop level, um, which can get tricky. But I think it's all about just monitoring, you know, checking in on those numbers each month and making sure it's not time to tweak. Like I need to not offer free shipping on this guy or I need to up the price on this guy, things like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I do I do want to talk about pricing, but one part of pricing that um, is is kind of like a also feels like a little bit nebulous in the sense of like the same thing of like you don't have to declare taxes until you've made X dollars. Um, but what what about like if you so you're a maker, right? You're a maker and you are not an employee earning an hourly wage. You're not somebody who charges by the hour for your work if you're not service-based. So how does somebody decide what to pay themselves or do you decide to like pay yourself? I think that paying yourself in general is very important and building the ability to pay yourself into your business finances is essential if you want to plan to run whatever activity, whatever business you're running for the long term. Um, a lot of us get started selling and we're not even really thinking about paying ourselves. We're thinking about making our beautiful piece of art and like hoping people buy it and we get focused on making sales and, and we don't necessarily think about how much is left over at the end of the day from which to pay ourselves, right? But that I feel like will only sustain you for so long before you get burnt out, get resentful of your business. If you don't see any financial reward for all of your hard work, like just those happy feelings are not gonna sustain you forever, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody deserves to get paid for their time and energy, even if it's something that you enjoy doing. Um, I have a whole like goal, goal getting, goal setting process that I like to work through where instead of starting with like your sales goal, you're starting with your take home pay goal at the very top of the goal setting chart. Like you're thinking about how much you would like to take out of your business because we don't make an hourly wage. We're not on a salary. Um, it's up to us to pay ourselves. How much do you want to be able to take out of your business this year from your business bank account to your personal bank account as your take-home pay goal. And then set your, your sales goals, your expense budget, 
and thus your prices based on that overall goal. And a lot of times when makers walk through that process, you'll have some eye-opening moments where you're like, oh, hey, if I want to pay myself 20K from my business this year, like I literally would have to sell 10,000 things and I don't have enough time to make 10,000 things. So I need to readjust my whole business model, like up my prices or hire help to help me make 10,000 things. You know, um, it can be an eye-opening process because there can be a disconnect between the end result and the take-home pay goal. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. So then it's not, it wouldn't be like, oh, you should pay yourself what you would pay somebody else if you were to hire them on an hourly basis sort of thing. The hourly basis question just gets convoluted to me because we are, we do so much in our business, you know, mm -hmm. and you can crunch numbers all day on how long it takes you to create your jewelry or your yarn or whatever you're making. But then we have probably just as many hours, if not more photographing, listing, social media work, you know, filling orders. There's so much that we do in our business. Um, I definitely think considering hourly rates is worthwhile. Um, but I look at it more from like, what is that take home pay goal? And how many hours do you think you're working in your business overall? Like, and is that result, is that hourly rate something that you can feel good about? You don't mm -hmm. want that to be $2 an hour either. Right. Um, I just think that when we focus just on the making process, we lose some of the, the bigger picture. And the same thing for me comes with pricing. I think a mistake that we make a lot when pricing our individual products is we only consider the costs of what go into the physical product too, just like that, the time. There's so many other costs that go into running your business, like paying for advertising and postage and um, you know, the courses and the memberships that you take and the props for your photos, all that stuff. There's so many outside costs other than just your supplies that go into your physical product that we need to consider. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, are there, are there certain types of like industries now in, in like the fiber arts community, like we tend to see like they're there is like a bit of a ceiling sometimes on pricing. So I'm, I'm guessing like, this is kind of me just thinking out loud with hopes that I get some reflection here, but um, that if, if it seems like, you know, the market is just not going to bear a higher price on something, mm -hmm. then you also have to kind of work within that range as well. Correct. Yeah, I definitely think it's it's kind of a tug between um, what you need to price and what the market will bear um, because, yeah, you, you have to know your numbers really well because if you feel like you're working in a market where you can't go higher than a certain number, what, what are you going to do to still meet your goals? Like at, at some point, if your costs just don't support that price, then you're going to be what selling at a loss, making $0. Um, yeah. you, you have to decide what you want to do there, like lower your costs, try and increase your efficiencies somehow. Um, and then, yeah, I do think there's something to be said for, 
I'm not even looking at what the market is doing. I know my costs. I know what my take-home pay goal is. I know what I need to price at in order to keep running this business in a sustainable, profitable way. Mm -hmm. Now, what do I need to do to attract a customer at this price? Where's Mm -hmm. my ideal client? Where's my ideal audience? who will buy at this price. You know, I'm sure there's someone out there selling luxury yarn for some way higher cost than the rest of the market and they're able to find those people. It's it's a then it becomes like a marketing question, a marketing yeah. problem, right? Yeah. Um so I mean, I'm not saying like go crazy with it. It's always a tug between those two things like what the market will support and, and what your costs are in order for you to feel good about continuing to run your business, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I guess I probably should say, like, when we're talking about what the market will bear, we're talking about what somebody will pay for a specific right, system. Right, right. So, like, in the instance of the yarn industry, like, it, it depends. Like, there are some luxury yarns that you can go up a little bit on. Um, there tends to be that most people won't pay more than, like, $29 for, like, one skein of yarn. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, you don't usually see a whole lot higher than that, unless it's like somebody who raised the sheep, sheared the sheep themselves, then they spun mm-hmm. it themselves and then did all these other things with it. But, but yeah, so that's, that's the market bearing. Um, so then I guess really that, that kind of covers like most of the things that I would have asked you about, about pricing, to be honest, because, you know, really working backwards sounds like it's like the best, the best way to figure out what you need to do to like make those shifts, I guess, and reach that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm obviously coming at it from a biased perspective because I'm a numbers person, but I think just knowing your goals and then knowing how your numbers can support those goals. So just having a really good understanding of your numbers and your profit margin is what can really help you. The only other thing that I would add to that is um, when people talk about like a pricing formula, people get really hung up on like, what is the pricing formula? I want the pricing formula. (laughs) And there's not like one set pricing formula that is the end all be all right answer, right? I, I think that I think that starting with a pricing formula can be a fine place to start, you know, add in your labor, add in your time, add in your costs of that good. Um, What I do like to consider in a pricing formula, if I'm going to start with one, is an overhead rate. So like what I was saying, where I think one of the bigger mistakes we make when it comes to pricing is only considering the cost of the product. An overhead rate is an accounting concept that helps you consider the other costs of running your business. So um, when I add an overhead rate to coming up with a a retail price, I'll consider all the costs of running my business for like a year, say, Um, and it's an estimated dollar amount. You can look at how much you spent on non-product costs last year if you want to have a good starting point. Let's say I spent, you know, like $5,000 on advertising and printing and courses and all that stuff. I would take that 5k and divide it by 
some sort of number of products, like maybe the number of products I plan to make this year, again, estimates are fine, or maybe the number of products I'm gonna plan to sell this year or hope to sell this year. And you come up with a rate like $5 per product. And that is what I would add to the product cost to hopefully, um, the goal is that you're gonna recoup those non-product expenses with every sale you make. Because what I feel like happens a lot is we don't consider those costs and we think we're making like this nice profit cushion on every sale. But that profit that we think we're making is actually just getting eaten up by all of those business expenses that we didn't think about, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we're not able to pay ourselves because we spent $5,000 on all this other stuff. Um, but that overhead rate to me is just a nice way to like symbolize or represent all the other costs of running the business. So I, I am considering it in some way when I price my goods so that I am hopefully able to still pay myself at the end of the day because there's enough profit left over. Sure. Right? Yeah. And that's, no, that's just really... a super simple example. You can change that overhead rate or work it in in many different ways, but it's just about the, the concept of considering it at all. Mm -hmm. So would you, would you say then that it kind of is similar when people are looking at doing wholesale, like selling to kind of do some sort of adding in to make sure that you're still making a profit, even though you're kind of selling it at a discount sort of thing? <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. I think that it's helpful to like set, like if you're going to do your formula, do your formula and set a retail price and then work backwards from that mm -hmm. and make sure there's still a profit from that wholesale price. So like, you know, you may take your retail price and divide it by two because a lot of people will sell wholesale at 50% of retail or, you know, maybe you make it 60% or whatever, whatever sort of discount wholesale you're gonna plan to offer, whatever that result is, what's the profit margin remaining in that price, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if it's not somewhere where you're still selling at a profit, even if it's a smaller profit, right? If it's not somewhere where you're still selling at a profit, then that means probably your retail price has to increase to cover that. Sure. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's super helpful. That's very, very helpful. Okay. So we've talked a lot about a lot of like very basic fundamental stuff. I think that like every business owner should have like as one of their ducks in a row. Um, what are some of your top tips for business owners, if we haven't already mentioned them, as far as like making sure that you are like bases are covered, things are organized so that you don't get audited later. <laughs> <laughs> From a general perspective, I would say keep a good bookkeeping system. Like that's, that's step one for me. Um, and hopefully, you know, our discussion of paying yourself and pricing and all that can convince you like, hey, keeping track of my numbers in some sort of system, it's not just about like, oh, I need to be ready to file my taxes. It's not like boring stuff only. You can use those numbers for good, right? You can use them to make good decisions, smart decisions moving forward, use them to know how much you can pay yourself, use them to let you know when it's time to increase your prices or whether you can afford doing a sale. There's lots of more fun reasons to know your numbers than just be ready to deal with the IRS. Um, from a, so you don't get audited perspective, um, when we go back to those more boring reasons, 
or less fun reasons. Um, yeah, I mean, still having a good bookkeeping system is essential, but I would just, the, the best thing I think you can do is just educate yourself and be prepared for April 15th. Um, most of us are probably sole proprietors. If you're in the US, like that's the business entity type that you're gonna default to. So looking at the Schedule C, which is the two page form that sole props will end up dealing with at tax time, looking at the Schedule C now instead of waiting until closer to the tax deadline is what can help you feel better now, um, make you feel a little more confident about filling that guy out because you've seen what it looks like. So you can have an idea of what you need to track now to be prepared for that. Um, and just being prepared to fill that out alone will help you deal with the tax man and, and calm any fears on getting audited. <laughs> Perfect. So if people want to find you and your spreadsheets and your courses and everything online, where can they do that? You can find all of my resources at paperandspark.com. So again, highly, highly recommend checking out Janet's stuff. And she is later this month running a free series. I believe it's even a four-part series called Tax 101 that you can sign up for and learn a bunch about your taxes as a business owner. And we will talk to you next week.